Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part one of episode number 63 of my 16 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part one of episode number 63 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I was going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And uh, each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show into two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks, then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And then the second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the studio musicians on the track? Who are the band members on the track? What studio the song was recorded at? And who engineered the track? And where the studio the song was recorded at was located at? And where the label that the song was released on was located at? And what peak position it made up on the Billboard Hot 100 charts? The year and month the song was originally released? All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we move on to this week's episode of the podcast, I want to let you guys know something. Okay, so... Ever since I started this show, I've always wondered what are some things I can do as far as some events I could do, I could coordinate to sort of incorporate sort of that in-person sort of aesthetic or the live sort of aspect of me doing this podcast. And most of it's on the internet, so I was trying to figure out what's a cool way of incorporating uh, what I'm doing with this show um, sort of in an, an in-person kind of an atmosphere. So... Basically, the way I'm going to do that is that I am in touch with a guy who currently is uh, booking uh, showcases at this really, really cool venue in Los Angeles and Hollywood called the Hotel Cafe. And uh, I'm basically what I'm doing right now with him is that uh, I'm going to coordinate a show, which will probably be in October. But basically what the show is going to be about is that I'm going to get some really, really cool dope artists in Los Angeles and basically... What we're going to do is that the whole night is going to be a tribute night to all these really good 60 songs that I grew up listening to and the ones I talk about on the show. And it's going to be so good because you guys are going to get to hear these songs live. And many of you, if you are based in L.A. and you do listen to this podcast, you might not have heard these songs ever before live. So this is probably going to be the first time you're ever going to hear these songs live with the band. And it's going to be so good, and it's probably going to be like a three-hour show from 9 to midnight. Uh, it's going to be awesome. So, I, you know, I'll let you guys know when it's set in stone and when the date's set in stone. And, you know, I we still need to figure out a bunch of things like putting the band together and, you know, just, uh, you know, getting the artist booked for all the songs and finalizing the set list. All those things we got to do soon. But I will definitely keep you guys posted as to when the date is set and when we got all that stuff figured out, because it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so good. You know, since hardly anybody do these does these songs live anymore, and they're just they're just so good, and a lot not a lot of people out there are familiar with them, especially in L.A., so I'm very, 
very ex- excited for when this is going to happen because it's probably going to happen. I mean, I talked to him uh, a couple nights ago, and he said that it would definitely uh, be a possibility and more than likely a for sure thing. So I'll definitely keep you guys posted and let you know about that. Moving on, let's get started in this week's song, shall we? Okay, so the song I'm going to be doing this week for my podcast, it's definitely not a happy song at all. I got to be honest with you. Um, this song is super duper sad. And um, even though the song has pretty, you know, bummer bummer lyrics, I mean, the unfortunate thing about this song is that despite is super unhappy lyrics, the situation the song describes is somewhat is something that unfortunately still happens today and it might be a rare occurrence in today's world but it definitely still happens in today's world i mean you know it might not be as often as it was back when the song was originally recorded and released but you know shit like what happened what goes down in this song st- still unfortunately happens on occasion and this song is also extremely low-key and not super complex or head-spinning like the song I did last week. I mean, everything about this song is relatively simple, which can make it easy to listen to. But there are definitely some subtle things about the arrangement for the song that make it unique and interesting. And even though the song doesn't have the most complex arrangement on the planet, it's still very effective. And it's almost bare, and in bare-bones arrangement helps get the song's point across. And really, I mean, this is definitely one of those songs that is very, very emotional and just, you know, very, very... The situation that happens in the song is super heartbreaking. But it also could be a song that you uh, you might have known someone or you might have... You might be someone who has, you know, gone through a similar situation that what happens in the song. The song came out in September 1964... It's by a one-hit wonder group called J. Frank Wilson the Cavaliers. It's called Last Kiss. Well, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good. So I can see my baby when I leave this world. We were out on wow. Man, this is just a very emotional, super tearjerker of a song, but it is just so fucking good that it's just amazing. It's incredible. And in today's episode of the podcast, we're going to break down what makes this song so great, both the songs, lyrics, and music, but... Um, before we get to that, we got to talk about the song's music first. Okay, so unlike the last episode of my podcast when I did that Turtles song, um, you know what I mean, uh, the structure of the song and the chord changes for this particular song, like I mentioned earlier, are extremely simple. But really what makes the song so simple is that it really just has only four chords. That's That's it. I mean... Uh, the song, I mean, there's a couple sections where, you know, they kind of take a break from those four chords and, you know, they just, you know, where the, everything cancels out and it's just the drums. So really, it's just those four chords on repeat, you know. So, um, but anyways, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's kind of easy to listen to because it's just, it's not, there's nothing too complicated to the point where you get lost in the song. You don't know what's going on. It's pretty easy, pretty simple 
and you know pretty you know good to listen to if you just you know don't want to you know you know give hurt your brain by listening to something super complicated but really um the chord progression used in this song was an extremely common progression in the late 50s and even probably early 50s too um and and even and also the early 60s too and that progression was known as the doo-wop chord progression now the last time i talked about this chord progression on this podcast, I did a song that had a variation of this classic chord progression, but it wasn't exactly like how it originally was. I mean, it was kind of a, a skewed version of that progression that wasn't uh, true to the you know original incarnation of it. Um, but this particular song has more of a blatant example of this chord progression that sticks to its original form. And essentially, to break it down for you, um, theoretically... Um, another term that, that that's used for songs with this kind of progression, uh, these these chord progressions are also called the ice cream chord changes. But really, um, it's essentially um, a one six four five progression, with the six chord being minor and the four and five and one chord being major. Um, the interesting thing about this progression is that, for the most part, there aren't really a whole lot of notes changing within the song. I mean, there are a couple of notes being changed up until the last chord, which is the um, the five major. But really, the only kind of the only real variation with this progression that was just as common, if not more common, than the original incarnation, which is one six four five, is one six two five, where they substitute the four major with the two minor. I mean, but you know, other than that, you know, it doesn't get doesn't really you know. Uh, adventure outside of those two variations of the same progression but really it really does surprise me that a song with this chord progression was still a big hit in a post Beatles America where the British invasion was in full swing when the song came out I mean you know it's funny because you know the groups like the Beatles and other British invasion bands too did such a good job of sort of introducing new chord changes and new things uh, to the record by in public, you know, things that might were probably not foreign to, you know, before they kind of came on the scene, but they were new to the point where they were kind of, you know, getting away from the late 50s and early 60s and those really cliche chord changes, you know, something that the Brilla Building writers kind of did a little bit before them. But anyways, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, on the other hand with this song, you know, even for its time, it was old school because people had seemed to have moved away from the 50s chord progression, uh, you know, with its innov- with the innovative chord changes that groups like the Beatles were coming up with at the time. So the fact that this song was a big hit with this older progression, you know, which was old by 1964, as far as I'm concerned, was a cool achievement, um, you know, for a group like this, this total one hit wonder group from uh, out completely out of left field, you know. Um, but anyways, like I said before, this song is a very simple arrangement as well as a simple chord progression. But one subtle thing about this track is that um, the song starts out with drums and bass. And the bass comes in on the third measure of the song. Okay, so in this part of the track, the bass player establishes the chord changes for the song by playing the song's signature bass line. And it's funny because in this part of the song, the bass can be heard very, very loud and clear and very upfront, almost to the point where you can pretty much like learn the bass line for the song pretty easily if you're a bass player, you know, because the bass is just so up in front that it can be heard so clearly, you know, I mean, they must have used a lot of compression on 
uh, the bass player, uh, you know, just so that way the bass can be really pushed to the front of the mix, uh, at least in the intro for this song. Um, but anyway, so here's something. Here's, okay, so the bass player comes in, right? And then, you know, I think they play for like, um, like you know, th- uh, three, three or four bars, and then the lead vocals come in. And anyway, so here's something you probably wouldn't even notice unless I pointed it out to you. Uh, I honestly don't know if this is true, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say in this song, uh, for the bass in this song, the engineer recorded the song's bass direct into the console and did not mic it up using an amp and a mic, meaning he plugged in his bass with an instrument cable direct into the mixing board without the use of an amp. Um, Something that honestly wasn't very common uh, back in those days um, which kind of surprised me because a lot of those songs were recorded live, you know, so obviously the engineers had to deal with like bleed into the other tracks or, you know, bleed in from the, you know, one microphone bleeding into the other. I, I would think that, you know, recording bass direct was a lot more common, but to be honest with you, not a whole lot of people did it. And Motown was one of the first record companies to do that. But anyways, um, the reason why I say this is because his bass can be heard so well in the beginning of the song and since this track was probably recorded live um they probably recorded his bass direct into the mixing board to avoid any issues with any other mics bleeding into the bass mic um you know and that was a common problem back in those days and when it came to live recording sessions because everything was being done at the same time and mic and you know and you know mics a lot of times you know when all the instruments are playing all at once the the mics would bleed into each other you know and you know and back in those days this was before you know uh you know computers and logic and pro tools so mic bleed was a, a lot harder to get rid of back then versus today cuz your your only the only only options they had were noise gates but really you know, it was not as easy to get rid of, uh, you know, mic bleed back then like it is today. Um, but anyways, um, you know, especially since back then, you know, most of the time they were doing with like four, three or four track recorders, you know. So not only were all the instruments bleeding into each other with the mics, but it was all getting put, bounced, you know, to like th- three or four tracks, you know. And each bounce, uh, you know, the engineer would make, you would, you know, he would lose a generation of tape. You know, um, but anyways, um, so for those of you who are out there would, who don't know what bleed means, because some of you might be listening to my podcast and you might not be an engineer, you might have not have a clue what I'm talking about. Well, bleed is when you have you know mics picking up other instruments being recorded all at the same time, and all of a sudden you have multiple instruments being recorded in the same tracks. Like for example, um, you would have you know uh, drums being in a guitar track or bass in a guitar track or piano in a guitar track and uh you know and something that i think it still happens today when people record live drums but again with uh today's technology with midi um technology you know a lot of that can be avoided but a lot of it couldn't be avoided back then though but anyways getting back to the song even though the song has a very simple chord progression the instrumentation isn't exactly that simple. The guitar player is playing a palm muted rhythm to go along with the song's chords, and the backup singers are singing their own melody to complement the lead singer's melody and lyrics, and the piano player is really holding down the fort by playing the chords of the song. And one other really cool thing that the piano player does in the song is that 
right before each section starts, like right before the first verse, and even right before the chorus, he does this cool little melodic sort of three or four note thing that just kicks off the whole section of the song. And you can, you know, if you listen closely and listen to the first couple, you know, seconds of that verse and even the chorus too, you can really hear him do that. And that's just so cool. I mean, he's really the driving force in the song along with the backup singers and the guitar player and the drummer too. Um, but anyways, um, uh, you know, the drummer in the song isn't really doing anything crazy. He's just holding you on the backbeat. Um, it's funny because when I first heard this song, I thought the drummer was utilizing this technique known as cross-sticking because the way the drums are recorded and EQ'd and mixed in the song, you know, they sound so different, you know, compared to other songs from this era. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, they're mixed in a way that it just, that they sound so low-key that I thought the drummer was doing something called cross-sticking. And basically what that means is that the drummer uses right or left hand, and he doesn't hit the center of the snare drum, but he uses his right hand to hit the rim of the snare drum by holding his stick diagonally on the snare drum, so he mainly just hits the upbeats on the snare drum by just hitting the rim instead of the actual head of the snare drum. Um, the sound isn't as loud as hitting the actual snare drum head, but it works for more quiet and easygoing parts of songs or songs that aren't as loud as rock or a lot of pop songs. Um, but yeah, so I always thought he was doing that, but then uh, I actually listened back uh, to the actual um, song again, and I noticed that he was not doing the cross-sticking thing. It's just that the drums were mixed in a way where it sounded like he was doing a cross-sticking kind of a thing, you know, where he wasn't hitting... He was hitting the rim of the snare drum and not the actual snare drum head. But he, yeah, he was actually hitting the snare drum head. It was just, they were you know, recorded in such a way that was so laid back and so not, you know, super up front and super loud to the point where it almost sounds, kind of sounds like he's doing the cross-sticking thing, but he isn't. Um, but yeah, so, um, yeah. And also another interesting thing about this song as far as the drums is concerned is that um, one thing that they do is that, okay, so um, in the very beginning of the song, it starts with the chorus, and then after the chorus ends, there's about a couple measures where uh, the drummer is just playing by himself, and then uh, the first verse comes in. And then after the first verse, right, um, right before the chorus, everything cancels out uh, for about one and a half measures, so you can really just hear the drums by themselves. Um, I think this was done for a dramatic effect, since the end of every verse in the song is a turning point in the story the song tells. So this little arrangement characteristic of everything canceling out uh, at the end of every verse and at the end of every chorus, chorus with just the drums uh, for one and a half measure really sets the mood and drama for the song, building up to the song's climax, which is obviously the chorus. But it's just... It's so interesting. It just it creates that drama when everything just you know cancels out, and then it just drums, and then for like one and a half measures, and then everything comes back in. Uh, this happens at the very end of the first verse, start of this uh, first chorus, and then end of the second verse, and then the start of the second chorus. Um, also, I love how the backup singers on this track really help out the lead singer 
in this track and the chorus. And also, here's a little comment I have about the lead singer. Um, because of the songs, because of the nature of the songs, lyrics, one thing I love about this track personally is just how the fact that he sings this song so convincingly to the point where it almost kind of sounds like he lived this song, the song's lyrics totally. I mean, it sounds like he went through this exact same situation at some point in his life, or he wrote this song and, you know, he was writing it totally based off of something that he went through personally. And it just sounds like it when you listen to this song. It sounds like he just, you know, sang it with such authenticity where it sounds like it, it's, it was something that he actually experienced. And um, just a quick little spoiler, he did not write the song at all, but he sang it as if he wrote it. And I thought that was really, really cool. And I hope that that's another part of the song that you like about it as well. Um, but anyways, um, getting back to the song, um, one other thing that really makes the song really good is that what makes it kind of unique too is that you know there's a lot of small town vibes in this song and i know what you're thinking sam what the heck do you mean by small town vibes well um you know a lot of times when you listen to a lot of these older songs you can kind of tell if they were recorded in a big city like new york or nashville or los angeles or detroit or chicago but then Occasionally you hear a song that was recorded somewhere else that wasn't a big city in somewhere like in Texas or New Mexico or somewhere like in Alabama or somewhere kind of off the beaten path, somewhere that wasn't necessarily a big city like New York, L.A., Nashville, Detroit, or Chicago. Um, and when you listen to the song, you can tell that this track was not recorded or written in a big city, but actually in a small, t- small town, totally off the radar from everything else, uh, at that time that wasn't a big city like New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, but it's small town vibes give the song a very homely vibe. And especially since many people like, I, it, it almost kind of feels like, you know, the song talks about kind of a small town kind of a situation. I feel like, especially since many people are all too familiar with the song subject matter, and I can pretty close to home to a lot of different people. I feel like a lot of people that lived in small towns and experienced what the singer went through in this song. I feel like that's what made it sound so authentic and so cool. Moving on, let's really get to the song's lyrics now. And, uh, you know, um, this is probably one of one of the reasons why the song is a uh, like I said before, um, this song tells a very sad but all too familiar story with people in America, and um, basically, um, it's about a car crash, and uh, it's about a car crash where somebody dies in the car accident, and uh. Basically, the the plot line for the song, just in case you ever want to listen to it, because it does tell a very detailed and very graphic story. And basically, the way it goes is that um, a guy goes on a date with his girl, and he borrows his dad's car, and they just go cruising, you know, down whatever highway or street they're on, and they're not really going anywhere, or they don't really, they don't, the guy doesn't really say exactly where they're going, but he does say that. Uh, you know, they haven't driven that far out 
um, from where they originally left from. And, uh, you know, they, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, they find a car that was stalled or they find a stalled car and, uh, you know, that, that had a dead engine. And for whatever reason, the guy driving the car can't stop his car. So he swerves to the right and then he somehow gets hit by another car. And then he hears the screaming tires of the glass of his windows breaking and he hears his girlfriend, uh, screaming. So then the song cuts to his core to the chorus, and and there we find out that his girlfriend died, and uh, basically this is probably one of the most dramatic parts of the song because at this point of the song you know we know that he gets into an accident with his girlfriend and we know that he dies but then we don't really know exactly what happens after that it's kind of a high point in the movie where, you know, something terrible happens and there's kind of a black screen and you're like, wait a minute, what's going to happen next? Cause you really don't know. So this is kind of, and when the second verse kind of comes around, we see that black screen dissolve and then we know, and then we find out that the guy who got into an accident, uh, got into a coma and then the crash supposedly knocked him out and he becomes unconscious and then he wakes up and it's pouring raining outside and there's people standing all around him. And then for whatever reason, he finds this girl, you know, I don't know how he finds her, but he says that he somehow found her, uh, you know, the girl that, you know, he was in an accident with and he and, and then and then she and then he finds her and then he finds out that she is on her last breath and she tells him to hold them for a little while and then he kisses her and then holds her and then she dies in his arms. Okay, so this song might be a, a little dramatic, kind of like a teen soap opera, but the situation that happens in the song is an all too real situation to a lot of people. Um, despite how well built cars are in today's world, um, unfortunately car crashes deadly ones happen almost every single day and it's one of the reasons as to why I cho I choose not to drive a car living in LA where I currently live because I really don't want to get into an accident um, but that's besides the point the point I'm trying to make is that even though most car accidents aren't deadly enough to kill somebody I mean I've known people who have gotten through car accidents and most of the time they didn't really get severely injured and they might have gotten you know, some minor injuries and in their car might have gotten totaled, but at the point I'm trying to make is that they didn't die from it. They walked out of their living and sur and they survived from it, you know, um, you know, and that's what I'm saying. Even though most car accidents aren't super deadly to the point where, you know, they, you know, they can kill somebody. Occasionally you hear about those incredibly bad accidents that happen like on the freeway or on freeway entrances that either kill somebody on impact or it hurts them so bad that their life is forever changed by the accident and most of the time it's not in a good way you might be listening to this podcast episode and i gotta be honest with you and you might have a close friend or a family member or maybe even a girlfriend you know that you might have lost or that might have been badly affected by a car accident that they were in. And if you have, then I want to say that I'm sorry that that happened. It's 
very unfortunate and I know that it's painful to experience something like that. And I hope that some of you out there listening to this podcast will find comfort in this song, even though it, uh, it's, you know, it doesn't, it's very, the lyrics are very sad. I feel like the, the situation that happens in the song is very, you know, relatable. And a lot of people out there will be like, man, this song hits home so much and it just makes me want to cry because I've been through, I've known somebody who's been through this and it's just the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to somebody. And the whole events in this song that happen in it are a pretty good description of what happens during a bad car accident, even though there are some details that are left out. We don't know where the guy's going and we don't know uh, exactly, um, you know, what happens we don't know if he gets how he actually gets hit we know he spots a stall car but we don't know if he like why his car why he couldn't stop his car and why he had to swerve to the right we have no idea um but also this song is a really good example of music that isn't very common these days but was extremely common back in the day and that genre of it was more of a subgenre of teen pop uh, you know, was known as teen tragedy songs. Okay, so in the late 50s, early 60s, teenagers had this fascination of dramatic songs of people dying or a guy losing his lover or a girl losing her lover. And most of these songs all have different plot lines, but the end result was always the same. And that was somebody, spoiler alert, would die at the end of the song. I mean... I'm just going to give you some examples right now, so that way you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a song called um, Running Bear by Johnny P- Preston, and uh, that song is about a guy who tries to meet up with this girl, who, and they're on opposite ends of a river. They swim, tr- they swim to each other, and then they both drown. And, uh, you know, and, it's, you know, and also, um, there's a song called Moody River by Pat Boone, and that song's about a guy who basically... Um, you know, like, I think, I don't, I forget the exact plot line, but I know, it, I think he discovers that his girlfriend um, committed suicide. And, uh, you know, and yeah, I mean, most of these songs, I mean, the Shangri-La's leader of the pack is about a guy who is a, a classic teenage angst song about a guy that, a girl that falls for a guy and the, and the parents, and, his, and her parents don't like him. And then he gets, you know, into a motorcycle accident and then he dies. But you get the idea. I think you get the point when I'm trying to come across with uh, songs like teen tragedy songs. Um, the subgenre of teen pop and rock and roll is so popular that many songs with uh, this subject matter were written to, to this uh, about this whole teen tragedy thing. And many songs with the subject matter became major hits at this time. And I think it's because Younger Death was way more common back in those days versus today. And I'm just going to give you a good example. A per, I'll give you a good uh, personal story um, about this. Um, my dad lost one of his best friends when he was in high school due to a freak car accident. And my dad was in high school during the 60s. I mean, he, you know, he was born in 1950, so he was around at this time. And, you know, he was young during the 60s, you know, so, um, you know, it wasn't uncommon for young guy or girl to lose another young friend or lover that was close to them at this time, and that's just proof of it right there. I mean, my dad lost one of his really good friends due to a freak car accident, you know, in the, you know, in the 60s, and, 
you know, and that's just that's just proof that, you know, young death happened back then. But I think nowadays, I think it's more common for elderly people, you know, not, you know, you know, young people to die. And you don't really hear about too many young tragic deaths, um, you know, today versus back then. But one thing is for sure, bad car accidents that might not kill somebody, but they, but that might dramatically change their life, not for the better. Uh, still happen quite a lot today and people can still die from them even though those accidents are rarer and fewer and far in between today versus back in the 60s so that concludes part one of episode number 63 of my 60 music podcast a millennial throwback machine i'm sam williams and if you found and if you liked my analysis on this week's song and you found it interesting and the lyrics of the song really spoke to you and really hit home to you and it was something that um affected you personally uh, i would really love to hear that um if that is the case you can email me at sam lt icloud.com or you can also follow me and reach out to me on instagram at iheartoldies and check out more of my Original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Um, a couple of things I wanted to say before I end this podcast. Um, here are the list of things that are in the, in the links in the description of this episode of this podcast. Um, first thing is the official Spotify playlist f- for the show. And on there you can check out all the songs I've talked about on my show so far. And you can see um, what kind of songs I talk about on my show. And hopefully you can get some ideas for... Uh, some suggestions for some songs that I haven't covered on my show yet that I would that I should cover on my show. Um, please go ahead and do that. I would really appreciate it if you can give that playlist a follow and listen to it. Um, also, another thing that's in links in the description of this episode of this podcast is this week's song, so we can check it out the full length version of it. Um, and also uh, the link to my official podcast merchandise store is also. In the description of this episode of this podcast, and that's really really cool because then you'll get to see my official logo uh, for this podcast, which is basically the catchphrase I say at the end of, at the end of every episode um, with "Keep on Truck and Tie Dye Font," and the name of the podcast is on the bottom. Uh, you know, you can find a lot of different merchandise items in that store, and most of them are really really cool, and uh, some of them are affordable. So if you, I would appreciate it if you can go on there and just uh, check it out and uh, let me know what you think of the store, or if you're really eagle eager and you like what I'm doing with this podcast, and you think it's really cool, I love it if you can purchase something from the store. That'd be awesome too. And yeah, so um, also, if you're listening to the show on the Apple Podcast app, I would really appreciate it if you could write me a review uh, for the show. Um, if you're just randomly checking it out and you love this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you can do that. And uh, yeah, and also, um, I, I actually looked at my iHeartRadio page uh, for this podcast. You can actually leave a comment. So if you're checking out iHeartRadio, please leave me a comment. I really appreciate that. Um, I really love your uh, engagement and support uh, for my show. I would love that personally. And yeah, so uh, also give me follow on Spotify as well for the show. Um, but anyways, uh, I'm Sam Williams. And by the way, I'll let you I'll let you guys know any further details on the '60s. Uh, you know, show once they become a parent and once I get the date and everything and. The musicians lined up, but it's going to be a really great show. You know, just keep, I'll keep, keep your eyes peeled on it. 
and I'll keep you guys updated on it. Um, but yeah, so I'm Sam Williams, and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please keep things groovy.